Well, as Joe said, my name's Jake. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I have the honor of being the student ministry pastor. Uh, and every time I've preached in the sanctuary, I've started with some joke about youth ministry, um, usually involving dodgeball, but I just straight up ran out. And so dodgeball joke, moving on. Uh, we are going into a new series still in the book of John that we've been in for a few months. And our new series is Confronting Jesus where we are going to explore a few texts where there are confrontations around the life of Jesus, where Jesus is confronting people. And so it felt only appropriate to start this way. When was the last time you were seriously confronted by someone else over something that you had done? Think of it in your head. When was the last time that someone brought something against you in such a way that you were forced to answer for something you had done? When was the last time you were confronted by someone else? Now let me ask you, how much fun was that experience? (laughs) Not very. Um, High schoolers, you are all now thinking about your parents. Um, If you're an only child like me, um, it is every waking moment while you lived with your parents because there's no one else who did anything wrong. Um, But whether you're comfortable with conflict or not, no one enjoys being confronted. No one likes it. Why? Because confrontation takes the spotlight off the areas of our lives that are impressive, successful, glossy, and high-performing, and it forces us to reckon with the reality that not everything in us is as it should be. We hate and we avoid confrontation because it offers us a stark reminder that in spite of everything going well in our lives, in spite of the version of ourselves that we put before others and often ourselves, we are still people fundamentally in need of change. Confrontation has a way of dragging our whole selves into the light, and that's terrifying. In confrontation, you rarely receive any credit for the things that are going really well for you. You rarely receive any attaboys or pats on the back for things that you are competent in or doing well. Instead, your weaknesses and your shortcomings and your brokenness are just placed under a microscope. And because of this, we have a really natural aversion to being confronted. So what do we do? We double down on everything that is impressive about us. We double down on putting forward an image of ourselves that is successful, high-performing, has it all together, all so that we can avoid the reality that we are still people in need of change. And this finds its way into our relationships with Jesus as well. Uh, Ruth Haley Barton said this, a quote that has jumped off the page for me this week. Approaches to formation that focus only on those places where we are fairly well along can actually become defense mechanisms for avoiding awareness of those areas that are not yet formed in the image of Christ. I think the correct response to that is ouch. (laughs) You feel that, don't you? You see, in the upside-down kingdom of God, success is actually more dangerous to us than failure. Strength and success and this image we put forward to others that we have it all together, when things go really, really well for us, that poses a greater threat to our flourishing than our weakness does. Because we take those areas of success, of high-performing, of gloss, 
and we become blind to the parts of ourselves that God most intends to transform. Robert Mulholland builds on the same thought and says this, If indeed the work of God's formation in us is the process of forming us into the image of Christ, obviously it's going to take place at the points where we are not yet formed in that image. Here it is. This means that one of the first dynamics of spiritual formation will be confrontation. We need a Jesus who confronts us. We need a Jesus who doesn't just cheerlead for us. We need a Jesus who doesn't just encourage us in the areas where we're already fairly well along. We need a Jesus who illuminates and diagnoses, confronts, and transforms the areas of our life where we are not yet transformed. We need a Jesus who drags our whole self into the life and says, I long to transform you in the places that you are not even aware that you need transformation. We need a Jesus who confronts us. Because confrontation is crucial for transformation. In our, in our process of being formed into the image of Jesus, we need Jesus to confront us. In Scripture, if you look at any hero of the faith, anyone who models Christ-likeness well, think of Paul, Peter, Thomas later in his ministry, what you will find at the center of each one of their lives is a moment of pure confrontation with Jesus. The Apostle Paul is probably the most obvious, right? A guy who at the end of his ministry is so confident in the transformation of God in his life that he openly says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's radical to me. Openly saying, like, what is Jesus like? Well, by the grace of God, he's a little bit like me. I'm not ready to say that. I don't know about you. But Paul does. Why? What's the most formative moment in the life of the Apostle Paul? literally being confronted and knocked off his donkey by Jesus. (laughs) It is literal confrontation, and it alters the course of Paul's life, opens his eyes to where God seeks to transform him that Paul was formerly not aware of, and Paul becomes an absolute powerhouse for the kingdom of God. Not because of his strengths, not because of his resume, but because of Jesus confronting him. We need Jesus to confront us. And so that's what we're going to welcome in this new series, Confronting Jesus. We're going to do a terrifying thing, which is open our hands to the confrontation of Jesus Christ. We don't like confrontation. We run from it, but we need it. And so in this series, we're going to zoom in on a handful of times that Jesus confronts others. We're going to open our hands and say, with humility, where would Jesus confront us? Where are we in need of transformation where we are not aware? Where have, we come, where have we become blind to the ways that God most seeks to transform us? Sound good? Doesn't matter. I already wrote the sermon. We're going to do it. John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And when we talk about transformation, this text is the paint, or, or confrontation. This text is the patron, patron saint of confrontation. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out from the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Man, I can't think of many stories in Scripture that evoke such like a polarized response as this one. Like half of you right now are just like, where is meek and mild Jesus? Can we get him back? Like, can we get back the Jesus, you know, who meets the woman at the well, you know, who goes and dines with Zacchaeus, like the nice kind of friendly Jesus? The other half of you are like, get that meek and mild stuff out of here. Jesus, get the whip. Like, turn some tables. Let's get after it, right? Let's go, Jesus, right? We, 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 we approach this text in different ways because it seems so out of character for Jesus. He's so slow to anger. He's, being, he's confronted by the Pharisees left and right, but he doesn't really ever lose his cool. But in this text, Jesus goes into white-hot confrontation mode. He turns it up to 11, right? He literally flips out. Like, he gets enraged at what he sees, go into full confrontation mode, and there's a very obvious question for us. Why? Why this? Why this level of indignation? Why this level of confrontation? What is it that Jesus sees, illuminates, and diagnoses that is in need of this much confrontation from him, that he makes a whip? (laughs) What is it that instigates that level of confrontation? And most importantly, would Jesus confront us for the same thing? Verse 13, it says Passover is happening at the time. And what you need to understand is you cannot overstate how big of a deal Passover is to the Jewish people in this context. It's absolutely massive. It was a days-long festival all commemorating the first Passover when God hand-plucked his people out of slavery and oppression in Egypt. God's people were in the clutches of tyrannical, cruel Pharaoh. And God says, if you are identified as my people, I'll liberate you. I'll set you free. But not just that, I will name you as my people. You will be my special possession in the world. I will bless you. I will protect you. I will establish you in a promised land. But most importantly, I will establish you as a witness to the nations. I will establish you as my light to the world, a light to all nations, as God says. You will be my representative on earth so that other nations who do not know me will see you, how you operate, how you worship, and they will be grafted in and they will worship me as well. Israel is God's strategy for growing God's family. Israel is to be a faithful witness And Passover embodies this. During Passover, Jerusalem would erupt into what theological folk call an absolute rager. Like the city would just explode. Normally, Jerusalem had a population of about 20,000 people. During Passover, it erupts to about 160,000. It's eight times larger if you do the math like a youth pastor can. I know. Think about Pleasanton growing eight times in size for like a week like out of nowhere. It's like Times Square New Year's Eve status, right? It is bursting at the seams. And it's not just Jews who are coming to celebrate Passover. It's the nations. It's the Gentiles, the outsiders, the immigrants, the foreigners, the refugees who have come to live among God's people. They all turn out to worship Yahweh. It's beautiful. So the city erupts, and that's what Jesus would have seen as he went up into Jerusalem. He would have turned the corner, gone through the city gates, and the city would have been chest-to-chest people. 
shoulder to shoulder, every alleyway full. Every inn is taken, every Airbnb is reserved. All the trendy millennials are outside the city and they're kitted out sprinter vans. Like, people are just exploding. Like, it is an absolute mob scene. There's the smells of food, the roar of a crowd, there's music, there's dancing. This is a party to end all parties. Jesus enters this scene, and where does he go? Same place everyone else is trying to get to, right? The temple. Now, Jerusalem is a city on a literal hill. It's above everything else. The temple is also on a literal hill inside Jerusalem. And so when Jesus would have gone up into Jerusalem and up into the temple, it towered over the rest of the city. Now, the temple was not like just like one little fairly fancy building in the middle of town. It's actually not really a building at all. It's a massive complex of outdoor courtyards. Here's a model of what we're very confident it looked like. We have drawings and sketches from the time. It was Herod who built this temple for the Jews as like a political propaganda piece. And so we have very good records that this is what it looked like. And the first thing you notice about it is it's big, right? That whole thing is considered the temple. Not just that little middle thing, but that whole enclosed area is the temple. Anyone want to hazard a guess on how many football fields you can fit in the temple complex without overlapping? 15, first service guess 10. The answer is 25. 25 football fields without overlapping them can fit inside that complex. It is 36 acres. That's like a third of the size of Disneyland. It's huge. And it has to be, right? Because you have 160,000 people in Jerusalem all coming to worship Yahweh, all coming to offer sacrifices and all these different things. And the place you had to do that was the temple. Now, the temple was designed in a kind of hierarchy. And this is really helpful for understanding why Jesus gets so confrontational. The temple is designed as a hierarchy. The word for temple in Greek is hieros, which is where we get our word hierarchy. So the temple is intentionally designed as a descending hierarchy of different spaces. The most exclusive space, the most important space, was that building kind of in the back center that towered over everything else. That was the holy sanctuary or the holy of holies. Also the naos in Greek. Tuck that away, that'll matter. This is where God's presence was said to dwell. If you asked an Israelite, where is God? They would point to the naos. They would point to the Holy of Holies. Only very, very particular people like the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. Very exclusive. Cozied up to the Holy of Holies was the court of priests. If you were a Jewish Levitical priest, this is where you would worship. This is where the altar was. And so this is where the priests all day long during Passover would be slaughtering animal after animal after animal. It was a slaughterhouse. It's very gross. But the priest would be cozied up in this exclusive inner court next to the Holy of Holies. Outside of that is the court of the Jews, where if you were an Israelite, if you were a Jew, you could worship in the court of the Jews. No one else could enter. And so the priest could go in there, but the court of the Jews was just for the Jews. But most importantly for us today, there is that massive outer courtyard. Anyone know what it is? Court of the Gentiles, good. In first service, I joked that uh, Dr. David Ekman wasn't here because no one said anything. Um, it's Court of the Gentiles. It wasn't just for the Gentiles. Gentiles, by the way, are anyone who isn't a Jew. I think I was like 20 
when someone finally told me that, when I like stopped pretending like I knew what a Gentile was because I was embarrassed. So my gift to you is a Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew. Um, And so that's where the Gentiles would worship. Anyone who had come to the holy city of Jerusalem to worship Yahweh and they weren't Jewish, they would come to the temple, they would worship in the court of the Gentiles. What that means is this. The court of the Gentiles was filled with foreigners, immigrants, and refugees. Those would be people who weren't Jewish who came to worship Yahweh, right? Foreigners, immigrants, refugees. Beyond that, it was anyone who was unclean, so a beggar, a cripple, a sick person, an invalid. It was the court of the least of these, right? That was the design of it, is that if you weren't Jewish, but you still wanted somehow to worship Yahweh, if you were a foreigner, an immigrant, a refugee, sick, a beggar, a cripple, an invalid, whatever, you would worship in the court of the Gentiles. And the reason this court exists, which is very, very unique that a temple would have this, by the way, and how big it is, the reason it existed was a physical embodiment of God's will for Israel to be a faithful witness, right? They are a light to the nations. Therefore, Yahweh's very temple has literally built into it a place where anyone can worship, the least of these, the foreigner, immigrant, refugee, sick, invalid, they can all worship in this court of the Gentiles. It is designed so the outsider can come, worship Yahweh, prepare, have the priest prepare a sacrifice for them, and be, just for Passover, grafted into God's family, and thus experience the life of the church, experience what it meant to worship Yahweh. It's a powerful space of welcoming and inclusion, kind of like an every tribe, every tongue kind of thing. That's what the purpose is. The reason it matters for us is this is where Jesus would have flipped tables. That's where Jesus would have stood as he overturned tables, as he let animals loose. Also, those columns in the back, that's where Jesus would have done all of his teaching in the subsequent chapters of John. And I know it's cool. Jesus doesn't teach in the court of the Jews or the priests. He teaches like in the outsider's court. Jesus is rad, theologically speaking. Moving on. But during normal time, not in Passover, there would be a small little enclosure in the corner of the court of the Gentiles where animals would be sold as a service to the foreigner, right? So if you didn't want to bring your own sacrificial animal to Passover and risk it getting stolen or hurt or losing it or whatever, you could simply buy one in the corner of the court of the Gentiles. During Passover, however, if you look at historical documents from the time, that little market in the corner inhaled the entire court of the Gentiles. The entire thing became one gigantic marketplace. It was the whole thing. If you look at historical writings from people like Josephus or other kind of contemporaries around the time, they all use the same phrase about this. They call it Onus's Bazaar. Onus meaning the high priest, Bazaar meaning a marketplace. Out of all the trade, all the commerce, all the business being done in this court of the Gentiles, the high priest would take a cut. And the temple got richer and richer and richer whenever they did this. The temple got filthy rich off of this bazaar, off of this marketplace. Also, 
in this court, as John 2 tells us, there were money changers. Now, the purpose of a money changer is that if you were a foreigner or an immigrant or a refugee and you came to the temple and you wanted to buy an animal, you couldn't use foreign money and you couldn't use Roman money. Why? Because Caesar's face is stamped into it, right? You're not going to use a graven image to pay for something at the temple of Yahweh. And so what the temple did as a service is that you could bring your Roman money, your foreign money, and you could convert it into Jewish money. You could convert it into a shekel, right? So you could buy animals, you could pay the temple tax, you could do the whole thing. But these money changers, historically, we know, they were charging four or five times the actual conversion rate, bleeding those dry. So imagine this. You're an outsider. You're an immigrant or a foreigner. You come to the temple to worship Yahweh. You only have foreign money. So you go to a money changer. They rob you blind. You are left with pennies to the dollar in your hand. And with those pennies, you go to this roaring marketplace and you find an animal you can afford, and the sellers of those animals are themselves upcharging you several times for what an animal is worth. You would leave the Passover destitute if you were a foreigner. Your choices were basically go and worship Yahweh in the temple or be able to afford your next meal. That was the choice as a foreigner you had to worship Yahweh. On top of all of this, there are historical records of outsider families who brought their own sacrificial animal to the temple. And there are historical records of priests coming out from the court of priests, going to these outsiders and saying, oh, you brought your own sheep. I don't know. It's a little dirty on one side. Maybe it, maybe it fell over when it walked into the city. It, it, it's just not up to our sacrificial quality. And, and we wouldn't want you to, you know, to have a not as pure sacrifice because then you wouldn't be fully atoned for. Very awkward. And so what you can do, you know, we'll, we'll take the sheep. It's fine. It's not useful to you. And what you can do is go, go to the money changers. They'll change your money. Then you can buy one of these temple sheep, right? That, we have historical records of that happening. Like, that's not me spinning a story. That is history. That's what Jesus sees. Jesus, in the city of God, walks into the house of God. He walks into the space where the foreigner, the refugee, the immigrant, the unclean, the beggar, the cripple, where they are all intended to worship God in God's presence alongside God's people who are bearing faithful witness to how God has included them and instead, they're being subjected to a grifter's market. While the religious elite and God's own chosen people are sequestered away deep within the temple in sacred spaces, the Gentiles, the outsiders, they're crammed into a house of trade. While God's people, a.k.a. the church, a.k.a. the light to the nations, are hidden away in a holy huddle... Everyone without the status or the privilege to know any better is being robbed blind. You have foreigners, immigrants, refugees coming to worship Yahweh and instead being subjected to grift and theft. And the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one of the few stories in all four Gospels, by the way. It's in a different place in those Gospels. But in all three of those Gospels, you know what Jesus says? He says, my father's house ought to be a house of prayer for all nations. <laughs> he literally points his finger at the court of the Gentiles and says, you've missed it. You've missed the point. Jesus is enraged 
because the church has failed to be the church. They're not being a faithful witness. Michael Gorman says it this way. To be an apprentice of Jesus is not merely to exist within a closed circle of fellow believers, but also to bear witness to the world. The church is not a holy huddle. Let's say it again. To be an apprentice of Jesus is not merely to exist within a closed circle of fellow believers, but to bear faithful witness to the world. The church is not a holy huddle. And so as Jesus stands there in the court of the Gentiles, he is seeing the church fail at that. (laughs) The church is literally a little holy huddle, sequestered deep within the temple, in their little religious enclave, cozied up next to the Holy of Holies, while everyone, the least of these, is just being brutally taken advantage of. And what I find the most chilling and the most disconcerting about this text is this. In this moment... Jesus doesn't care about the success, the enthusiasm, the ambition, the hype, or the energy of the Jews celebrating Passover at the temple. Think about it. Jesus is standing at the top of God's holy city in the most magnificent place of worship for Yahweh that has ever been built by human hands. He is witnessing the greatest demonstration of enthusiasm and worship for God that existed on the entire planet. He is standing in the worship service of worship services. You will not find a more hyped up, energetic, stoked worship service on the planet. And he doesn't care. Jesus doesn't care. He doesn't give the Jews a single attaboy. He doesn't go like, oh, wow, but look how many people turned out. Like, what a turnout. Man, good job, guys. I think 10% more than last year. Woo! Jesus doesn't go like, man, you you did how many sacrifices this year? Usually in the 200s of thousands, by the way. You did what? How much money did you make? How well positioned are you to care for the poor later? No, he doesn't care about any of it. He doesn't give a single attaboy, no pats on the back, no like, but hey, this was really good for you. He flips tables. He drives out the sheep and the oxen, making a whip of cords, also known as a shepherd's rod of correction. If you're thinking about Jesus as a shepherd. So he shepherds out all the oxen. Any people who weren't wise enough to take off, um, I also think they probably got the whip. The text says he drove them all out. He goes to the money changers, those grifting and taking advantage of the weak and the lowly. He overturns their tables, scattering their coins, saying, here's what I think about the temple's treasury. (laughs) And he spills it on the ground. The temple is rich, but the son of man is broke. And he has a thief for his treasurer, and he doesn't really seem to care. Flips tables. And then he offers his verbal confrontation. Get these things out of there. You're making my father's house a house of trade. Anyone remember in the text who Jesus specifically says that to? Blink and you'll miss it. It's weird. He says it to the pigeon sellers. <laughs> like Jesus really hates birds. That's, that's the, no. Um, famously, historically, and stereotypically, pigeons were the dirty sacrifice of the poor. If you couldn't afford a sheep, you could probably afford a pigeon, a dirty little pigeon. And so what you would do is you'd buy this pigeon with the few cents you had left after the money changers robbed you blind. You'd bring it to the priest and you'd say, here's my sacrifice. And the priest would say an additional prayer for you because your sacrifice was so lackluster. 
Tell me, is that a faithful witness of God in the church? No, that is not. That's, that's not a retelling of the story of God in Israel. That's just grifting. They've missed the point. And so Jesus confronts the pigeon sellers, those who are taking the most advantage of the poor, of the Gentile, of the outsider, of the immigrant, of the refugee. He confronts them with the hottest confrontation he has. And now this gets a reaction out of the Jews. In the other three Gospels, this is the story that gets them to kill Jesus. But here's what they say to Jesus in verse 18. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, who do you think you are? What gives you the right? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews don't get it. They say, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. There's a lot to say about this. That is loaded. Jesus offering himself as the true sacrifice foretelling his own death and resurrection, offering himself as the true spotless lamb, saying this marketplace isn't just dishonest, it's irrelevant. Because I am the true sacrifice. Trust in me. That's the only sacrifice you need. But hidden within the Greek of this text, something you don't catch in English, Jesus takes a direct shot at the temple staff. You see, when in the Gospel of John, whenever the word temple is used, it's always the generic word for temple, which is heros, that hierarchy word, remember? When Jesus says temple here, he doesn't say heros. The only place in the Gospel of John where temple is not the word in front of heros, he says naos, which is the holy of holies. Think about John writing his Gospel. Every single chance he has to use the word heros, he does, except one place in the entire gospel, and it's right here. Jesus says, tear down this holy of holies, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, let's think um, spatially about this for a minute, which sounds weird. Where is Jesus standing? The court of the Gentiles, right? The outsider's court, the farthest place away from the holy of holies. Jesus says, I am the real holy of holies. What does that make the court of the Gentiles? It makes it the court of the priests. What does it make the court of the priests? The court of the Gentiles. Jesus doesn't just flip tables. He flips the whole temple around. And he says, you religious elite, all cozied up to your so-called dwelling place of God. I am the dwelling place of God, and I dwell with the least of these. Ooh, Jesus. Right? My goodness. Can you? And the Jews don't get it. At least not. A, I'm picturing the Jews like later at night, like waking up, being like, wait, <laughs> he said what to us? Jesus declares himself as the true dwelling place of God, standing among the least of these the refugee, the immigrant, the foreigner, the weak, the poor, the lowly. And he says, You religious elite, God's chosen people, you've huddled up as a holy little enclave, a little opinion group, deep within your nice little sacred space. I tell you, this is holy ground in the court of the Gentiles. 
Jesus clears the courts, makes it a place fit for worship, offers himself as the true sacrifice, and says, you guys with all of your piousness, all of this, because the seat of power is not with the religious elite. It is wherever the Son of Man is, and I dwell with the weak and the lowly. See what Jesus does? He doesn't just confront the temple. He doesn't just tell them what they're doing wrong. He does what they needed to do which is offer himself as a faithful witness to the least of these. Where the, le- le- where the least of these have been robbed of worship, relegated to the slums of Annas's bazaar, Jesus says, I will make the bazaar a holy place. And your precious court of priests, that will be the farthest place away from God. Jesus flips it around. He does justice. He doesn't just get mad. He performs justice. Two lessons I think we can learn from this. And when I say we, I mean we. Like, not like America, not like Pleasanton, like Valley Community Church, 4455 Delval Parkway. Like, right here. What lessons ought we to learn from Jesus' confrontation at the temple? I think there's two. And the first one, to warn you, is a hard word. Whenever Jesus confronts, he always confronts the church first often on the basis of the church failing to be a faithful witness to the outsider. When Jesus gets confrontational, it's the church who takes it first. You notice in the text, who is it that Jesus confronts? The church. Jerusalem is a big city. You don't think there were tables for pagan things? You don't think there were sorcerers and divination? You don't think there were dishonest people outside the temple? Of course there were. But Jesus makes a beeline for the temple and confronts his own house first. I think we need to hear this because the American church, the evangelical church, the Western church, however you want to describe this, we tend to be extremely ready to confront the world or secular culture, and we tend to be extremely slow to evaluate ourselves and to receive the confrontation of Jesus against ourselves. We tend to be very, very quick, and I would say even good, and I would say often even faithful, at identifying sinful patterns that have become normalized in a sinful culture. So we point at it, we confront it, we set up our stance, but we don't check our own house. Our own house could be out of order for all we know. We are slow to repent of our own sin. Think of whatever, whatever group it is that you feel most inclined to confront and point a finger at. Political groups, sexuality, whatever it is for you. Have you accepted the confrontation of Jesus for the same things in your own life? If we're going to point our, fi- our finger at issues of sexuality outside the church, have we done the work of discernment and prayer asking God, where is our sexuality bent out of shape? There's enough stories in the news about it with churches. Have we, with open, humble hands, received God's confrontation against ourselves where we seek to confront others? In this text, it's not the pagans that Jesus seeks out and confronts. He doesn't flip the tables of secular culture. He flips the tables of the Jews, his own people, the temple, his own house, the church, his own body. When Jesus confronts, in all four Gospels, actually, it is almost always exclusively directed to his own people. It is rare that Jesus confronts someone who is not counting themselves as one of his own people. 
The apostle Peter, no stranger to Jesus' confrontation, by the way, says it this way in his first epistle. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter, an expert in receiving Jesus' correction and confrontation, anytime he opens his mouth, basically, he gets confronted. I know what that feels like. He says that any and all confrontation from God begins with the church. Starts here. God doesn't confront outside of the church and then inside the church. It doesn't happen at the same time. God goes to the church first. I think of in I think of in the, um, in, in, the, in the epistles when it says, you know, not many of you should be teachers because you'll be held to a higher standard. I think of that with the church. <laughs> the standard is higher for God's own church. If we are not faithful and welcoming and, and responding to that confrontation of Jesus, we will surrender our identity as faithful witnesses to those who do not know God. We will lose any credibility we have to be a witness of God, just like the church in John 2. You see, the, the confrontation of Jesus is not primarily intended to embolden his apprentices to confront secular culture or ideology. It's instead meant to confront you, to shape you, to purify us, to bring awareness to the areas of our lives that we are not aware needs transformations. By the Jews' response to Jesus in John 2, they did not get what Jesus was saying. They didn't get what the problem was. Their success, their hype, their enthusiasm, the gloss of ministry had blinded them to the areas where they were most unchristlike. And those are the areas where Jesus confronts. The question for us, friends, is not what table should I flip? The question is are you sitting at a table that Jesus would flip? Or several tables? You see, faithful apprentices of Jesus become masters at opening their hands to Jesus' confrontation. That's what an apprentice of Jesus does. That's, that's what they master. Not the other things that look so successful for us, but apprentices of Jesus become masters at humbly saying, God, if there is any offensive way in me, root it out and confront me. We sound like David in Psalm 139 when he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. If there is any offensive way in me, lead me in the way everlasting, because I don't know the way out of here. <laughs> that's what a faithful apprentice of Jesus does, and I would say that's what a faithful church does. When we find ourselves confronted or called hypocrites, we don't get defensive. We ought not to. We ought to say, where would Jesus confront us? Where would he flip our tables? How can we humbly open our hands to it and let Jesus lead us out of our lack of formation? That's lesson one. Lesson two is similar but different. Lesson two is this. Jesus is faithful to confront and transform the church. And that word faithful is important. I'll, I'll share candidly. Um, most, have you noticed a lot of people leaving the church recently? <laughs> Like, not like leaving Valley Community Church, like leaving the Big C Church. I've, I mean, I, I've felt it. I, I was born and raised in this church. Um, I'm 29 years old now. And looking back at the people I worshipped shoulder to shoulder with when I was in high school and middle school, I can't think of very many of them who are still in the church. Looking at them, and I know most of them personally, some of them became pastors and they left. They look at the church, and all they see are tables to be flipped. <laughs> They say, what a bunch of hypocrites. Like, my goodness, is there any witness left in the church? 
these people, they look at the church and they say, man, there are so many tables that Jesus would flip here. And you know what? They're right. <laughs> They're not wrong. And man, if you're in a place here today of when you look at the church and you look at the proverbial lobby and you just see tables to be flipped, you see all the things Jesus would be against in the church, I'll be honest, I feel it. <laughs> I really, really feel it. I think there are a lot of tables that Jesus would flip. And the temptation is strong to write off the church as a bunch of hypocrites. I love the church. I think it's big and beautiful. It is the gift of God to the world. I think that's still true. It's big and it's beautiful. But it is also broken in places. And it's okay to acknowledge that brokenness. And we ought not to get defensive about it. But the reality is this. Jesus is still Lord of his church. Jesus is still Lord and Savior of the Christian church, whether it's the church in Africa, whether it's the church in Europe, whether it's the church in Pleasanton, California, the American evangelical Western church that we all have so many issues with. We could stack all of our issues together if you want to. It'd be pretty high. Jesus is still Lord of that church. He still loves it. Think about this. When Jesus walks into the temple courts, the court of the Gentiles, did he have to flip tables? No, he could have walked in and been like, well, this is dumb, <laughs> and be like, all right, Gentiles, immigrants, foreigners, refugees, the weak, we're getting out of here. Like, we're going to do our own church service outside Jerusalem. We'll take the Holy of Holies with us, right? Like, we're going to leave these religious elite to their mess and their garbage. The mess they've made, well, they can lie in it, and we're going to go over here, and we're going to do it better. We're just going to leave. We're going to abandon this thing because it's hypocritical and broken. No. What does Jesus do? He confronts the church, not out of white-hot anger, but out of love for the church. Just like a loving parent in loving intolerance, not allowing their child to engage in self-destructive behavior, Jesus looks at the church and says, instead of just leaving and doing it better, I seek to transform and to purify the church. And Jesus still does today. Jesus is still flipping tables in churches today. The question is, is the church open to receive it and recognize it and faithfully respond? Jesus confronts the church because he loves the church. Jesus loves the church. He died for the church. He died for the church after this temple incident happened. Jesus is still Lord of the church. He is still transforming the church. The, the church is faithful. We have a faithful witness, not because we are so moral or we are so great or we are just killing it at the whole Jesus thing. The church is a faithful witness because we acknowledge where we're hypocrites and we welcome in Jesus to transform us. The church is good, not because we are good, but because Jesus is good and he is Lord of the church. That's the whole thing. <laughs> Friends, let us open our hands to the confrontation of Jesus, for it is there that we find ourselves formed into his likeness. I want to end with a quote. This is a, a member of a congregation in New York um, talking about um, how newcomers will experience that congregation. She says this, This community will disappoint them. It's a matter of when, not if. If they choose to leave when we don't meet their expectations— they won't get to see how the grace of God can come in and fill the holes left by our community's failure. And that's just too beautiful and real to miss. Whew. Goes on to say this. 
Jesus redefines the rules of engagement in order that we might not write each other off, but rather regain each other as beloved kindred in Christ. And by restoring life-giving relationships in the church by his love, he enables us to bear that same love to the world. If you're here this morning and you're just exhausted (laughs) by seeing all the tables Jesus would flip, I get it. That's fair. Jesus is still transforming the church. And if you leave, you will miss out on the beautiful work of transformation that God works at the exact points of brokenness in the church. May we be a church that welcomes it. God, thank you for this morning. I thank you that you are Lord of the church. (laughs) You don't throw up your hands in frustration. You don't flounce out. You don't finally come to the end of your rope and leave. You are faithful to us. You are stubbornly loyal to the church. Father, I pray that we would be stubbornly loyal to you, that we would open our hands to your confrontation. Where you would seek to confront us, let us be humble. Where we have become out of joint with you, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that are not defensive, but as David prays, lead me in the way everlasting. Show me any offensive way in me, in Valley Community Church, in our communities, in our calm groups, in our worship. Show us where we are out of joint, and most of all, show us where we have failed to be a faithful witness, a light to the nations as you have called us to be. In your name, amen.